This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Hello. Hello again, everybody. I'm your host, Nick Scheist, and we are here for Season 2, Episode 7, and I'm joined today by another Scheist International Film Club friend, but also the host of Double Feature Verses and a writer for 8-Bit Waffles. That's my friend Black Cinephile. He's here today to talk about a movie that I think maybe only the two of us like. But we did get some traction when we put the feelers out there on Twitter. And while it may have a Metascore of 1 and a Rotten Tomatoes rating of 4%, we're here to talk about Jason Bloom's Biodome from 1996. mahi-bahi, if you will. They're just like giving each other traumatic brain injury. You gotta think globally. These guys are like so dumb. Dude, I forgot he had the dreadlocks. Biting his own toenails. You better go to bed, brother. Eating bugs that he smashes on himself. They, they feel like they're idiots, which they are. Mm-hmm. That's a movie that they sell at 7-Eleven. There's a point where stupidity transcends itself to just straight up uh, secret genius. All right, my man. Hey, whoa. Mm-hmm. Black Cinephile, welcome to the show. We've been uh, we've been waiting on this one for a while. We talked about this. Uh, I don't know when we first we first met. Yeah, when we first met, and we we linked up on what was it the Discord, and I saw your your profile picture was I think it was Doyle, right? And I was yeah, like, oh my, yeah. oh my god, Biodome! Like, how could it possibly be? I've never met anybody who actually like this movie enough to talk about it let alone to have it as their avatar picture i'm gonna be real with you there were uh back when i used to um so i'm a, I'm a michigander but i live in the carolinas now back when i used to live in detroit there was like a um there was a radio station and um on the radio station one of the guests on there was um somebody that ran a local theater in detroit a local independent theater so people who were calling in they'd be like hey what questions do you have about the new place and uh, what's your favorite movie What's your favorite guilty pleasure? And uh, they say, this is a safe space. <laughs> the moment I called in, I said, you know what? A guilty pleasure for me is Biodome. <laughs> and all you, hear, all, all you heard in the studio was laughs like, Anthony, Biodome. <laughs> like, and I, it got a good laugh in the studio. But I explained, like, listen, the film just makes me smile. It, it's my happy place. 
Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, this show is about guilty pleasures. That's why I started this idea in the first place. I think it's actually important to have guilty pleasures like in your movie watching experience because I think you need both ends of the spectrum and it's totally fine to put on something that's dumb and simple and is not trying to be anything profound and just be able to watch it and enjoy it and laugh along. And so I'm 100% on board. I wanted to ask you though too, I think you're you're about 10 years younger than I am. So this movie came out when I was 12. So I want to know when it was nice. that you saw it. Did you see it as an adult or did you also come across it as an adolescent? So I was a I was an adolescent for sure. Um back in the day we had this thing called uh cable. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and uh back in the day there used to be this channel called the movie channel. I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. It might still be around. Um, yeah, but the movie channel I used to love where they would have like the little inner titles with the dog and it'd be like, you know, your feature presentation. Then you had the weird one with the, the blue man group, not the actual blue man group, but just a, a group of blue people going around handling the words T, M, and then C. So you could find a lot of great 90s comedies on TMC at the right time, usually at night. Uh, so one day I just came across Biodome and I said, Paulie Shore, oh, he's funny. I like him, you know, because I, I I liked his colorfulness. You know, I saw him in um Encino Man and some other stuff where he plays the wheeze or the weasel. And I was like, I like this guy as an adolescent. So I chose to watch the movie Biodome because I think I saw it in Blockbuster once with, you know, you see the poster. It's it's him and Stephen Baldwin. You know, they, they, they got their faces crunched up next to the uh, Biodome wall screaming. At first glance, as a kid, I looked at that like, that looks dumb. But I said, you know what, tonight I'm going to give this movie a chance. And I watched it, and I remember walking away from the film like, yeah, that was kind of funny. Like, that was funny. Like, I, I, I back then, I was a little cognizant of what dumb comedies were and what, so great dumb comedies and just great comedies. So smart mm-hmm. comedies and dumb comedies. And just comedies that, no, really, they, they really are just dumb. But they're great if you think they're great. And I knew that was a that was a that was a great bad movie I saw. I was like, that was kind of funny. That made me laugh. And just revisiting it ever so often, I, I would come across it at Blockbuster, or I would come across it on cable again. I'd be like, hey, that's that Paulie Shore movie I watched once. Let me look at that again. Before I know it, you know, down to today, I just I got quotes memorized. I so, some jokes I didn't even catch on as a kid, but I just thought it was funny. And then I look back on it as an adult. I said, oh, man, that's dirty. That's even more funny. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It took me a while to catch up with like the purple sticky punch. And then as I watched (laughs) it, when I watched it again, when I was, I don't know, maybe in my early 20s, I was like, oh, I was like, they're growing weed in here. I was like, now it makes sense. Now this movie makes a lot more sense. This humor makes a lot more sense because it's all coming like from that place. And it had been, I mean, at least 15 years since I had seen this movie and going back and watching it again it i mean i know where the movie's going i know like all the plot Mm -hmm. points i know the jokes and it just like it it came across very differently in terms of like who the characters were but we'll get into that in a little bit i wanted to ask you also did you did you rewatch it or is this one that like you just know so well that oh dude i i know this film so well man like i i know whole Plotline dialogues, like you know, like free mahi mahi, free mahi mahi, if you will. 
Like, I, just, I, I know the quotes. Like, I, I can quote this movie. I don't know about front to back, but I, when I see a certain scene, you'll have me like Will Smith and I Am Legend when he's, he's, he's reciting that whole Shrek scene uh, to the kid. And I'm just doing that when I'm watching this movie. Um, but I, no, I didn't need to watch it again. I, I know the movie. So when was the last time you've seen this? Dude, I want to say it was probably two to three. It was probably a month ago. It was probably it was probably very recent. I, I, I love this movie, man. One day I was just sitting on the bed and I was like, you know what? I could I could watch a new movie now or I could just watch something to pass the time on a Saturday. Let me look up that biodome. And I think they had it free on YouTube uh, with ads. And I was like, uh, it's rock and roll. Let's, let's, let's load it in. Yeah, it's 90 minutes. It's brisk. It's not like it's going to take up your whole day. And it's it really is fast. Yeah. yeah. And this is the kind of movie you can throw on in the background. Like you can walk away, come back. It's not like you're going to be completely lost from the story, even if you haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. so, I guess if you want to give me, I mean, you've, you've kind of covered it already, but give me like a two sentence summary of why you love this movie. Because for me, when I thought of the idea to make a show called bad movies, we love one of the first posters that I went and pulled for the cover art was biodome. Because it's always been a movie that I think even when I was young, I recognized like this movie is like not good, but I can't mm -hmm. help myself. And I just keep watching it <laughs> when it's on. And I watched it a lot when I was a young teenager. And I was like, maybe that's the demographic that it was aimed at. But I still mm -hmm. went back and watched it again when I was in my early 20s, too. So there's just something about it. It's like it's colorful. It's super breezy it's just very light and of course i mean i like william atherton too he's you know maybe the best part of the movie but we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit but if you give oh, me like yeah two, we don't get to that give me like two sentences on like what it is that you really love about this movie so there's a lot of bad movies out there and there's a lot of bad comedies out there with no redeeming factors right i feel like what what i love so much about bad biodome as a great bad comedy is the chemistry between Pauly Shore and um, I think it's Stephen Baldwin. Yep. Yeah, like their chemistry in the film makes this film so fun. Like Bud and Doyle, I feel like they 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 you're not seeing Pauly Shore as the weasel here. You're not seeing um, you know, Stephen Baldwin as um, well he's he's not he doesn't really have like a persona like Pauly Shore did, but you're not seeing the weasel and a character named Doyle. You're literally seeing Bud and Doyle, and you, they they literally feel like realized characters. Like these feel like stoner people that you may come across in life and be like, dude, I know them so well. Like they come across <laughs> as a Jay and yeah, like they come across as a Jay and Silent Bob. Like I know them so well. Harry and Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber. Like the chemistry between them is so damn strong that it makes it elevates the movie from being just another bad comedy to actually being a funny bad comedy. Like they, it's just strong chemistry between those two in the movie, and they they make the film worthwhile. Yeah, it's almost like this movie what started as like let's write these two characters, or let's start brainstorming like who these guys are, and then yeah. let's give them an excuse to be in a situation that is completely foreign to them, and so then you like build it out from there, and you put them inside the biodome, and. That's the movie. It's a very simple concept. Even the description says like two morons uh, is as moronic best friends get themselves locked inside the biodome science experiment, along with a group of environmental scientists for a year. Like 
It's not it's not it's overly complicated it. at all. <laughs> right. Because these two kids from Tucson can't tell them off from a dang environmentalist center. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, like they go in there, I, I had completely forgotten that the reason that they went into the biodome is because they got those giant like 64 <laughs> ounce sodas. <laughs> right. And they need to take a whiz. Right. Mm. All right. Well, let me grab the trailer because this is a movie that because it was on cable when I saw it, even it wasn't something I went to see in theater. So I don't even know if I ever saw a trailer for this movie. So I haven't. Let me grab the trailer. This episode of Bad Movies We Love is brought to you by the Society for Covering Your Mouth When Sneezing or Coughing in Public. Having spent a combined 23 hours either in an airport, on a plane, or on a shuttle to and from the airport over the last weekend, I can tell you firsthand that the amount of people who still refuse to cover their mouths while sneezing or coughing is alarming. That's why I'm happy to team with the folks at the SCYMWSCP to help raise awareness of a simple courtesy that goes a long way. It's not just important at airports, bus terminals, and transit hubs either. You'd think covering your mouth while coughing or sneezing at an urgent care facility would be a no-brainer, because everyone in urgent care is likely afflicted with something already. That's probably why they're at urgent care to begin with. But thanks to the inconsiderate nature of many folks, now when you go in to see a doctor for a simple earache, you can now leave with COVID or some other upper respiratory infection too. So, if you know you're not feeling good, and you have a nagging, wet, disgusting cough, or you're prone to sneezing outbursts, the least you could do for your fellow humans is cover your damn mouth. This message is brought to you by the Society for Covering Your Mouth When Sneezing or Coughing in Public. And now, back to the show. All right, well, let's let's see what this movie was trying to tell the audience back in 1996. The Biodome, a pure self-contained environment where five scientists are about to be sealed off from every conceivable form of contamination except one. Uh, well, check out that mall, man. <laughs> Part three is finally at hand. What kind of mall is this? Get out of here! The doors are sealed for one year. We're stuck here. That's right. 12 months? Yes. 52 weeks? Yes. 385 days? Wow. <laughs> the whole world is watching as Bud and Doyle are separated from their loved ones. Learn about endangered species. They're the rarest Lepidoptera in the world. Experience nature firsthand. Like every situation comes down to what's the dumbest decision that they could make. Protectors of the planet. Purple sticky punch or hemp is excellent source of photosynthesis. Just because we're stuck in a bubble doesn't mean we can't cause any trouble. Man, I used to hate that these kind of trailers ruined the movie. Yeah, this is just like, hey, they're gonna have a party inside this dome. Right, they're ruining the movie. Well, it's not like this is like a movie that don't matter if they don't if they ruin it or not, you know. 
Yeah, it's kind of like it's pulling its biggest punch, but it's giving away like right. a lot of the, the key scenes. It's not Fight Club. There's no major twist at the end. Yeah, exactly. Well, can you at least make it taste like chicken? Otherwise, I'm going to shrivel up like a supermodel. <gasps> I am so fat. No, no you're not. Biodome. I love that scene. Yes. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> oh, Good man. stuff. Good stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, that trailer just tells you, like, here's these two dumbasses. They're going to get in this situation. They're going to have fun with it. And... I mean, obviously, they show you there's a giant party in there, so they're not even, like, mm -hmm. pulling their punches with that. Uh, but just, like, pure 90s. Like, pure mid-90s mm -hmm. madness. I'm curious where they got the financing for this, because it seems like the kind of idea where Polly Shore is like, I'm going to just do whatever I want, and it really doesn't, matter in the long run like I i'm gonna this, just like go pure creative freedom yeah i think this was um because he was he was racking in the box office with uh mm -hmm. i believe encino man and all those but i think this is at the time where it's like um i don't know if this is at the tail end of of of, of his peak but i think he still was kind of like a name to so like seth rogan no mm -hmm. no well seth rogan's a big deal now so I, I let me go with somebody else so um Pete Davidson, maybe Pete Davidson, or maybe um, not Kevin Hart, but somebody that that's a comedian that kind of still brings in people to see a movie like maybe Mike Epps, you know, that name, yeah. those names, Mike Epps, Pete Davidson, they can kind of still generate audience audiences to come and, and put their behinds in seats. I feel like Polly Shore still kind of had that clout. So I guess that's kind of where they got the financing for it. Yeah, I think it was on the tail end uh, of that curve, as you had mentioned, because he did Encino <laughs> Man in 92, uh, Son-in-Law in 93, In the Army Now was 94, Jury Duty 95, and then Biodome in 96, and it kind of fell off after that point. So, I mean, like you said, he was a marketable entity at that point and this movie only mm -hmm. costs like 15 million dollars i mean it's all shot basically in one location so you rent it out you get the cast it's not uh, exorbitantly expensive at all right and it's money well spent like it's just let's have one big party like one big blowout scene where we're actually going to have a lot of extras a lot of set decoration etc and other than that it's really like what six eight characters that are present throughout the whole thing and there's i think one protest scene outside kind of late in the film where they they need extras but yeah it's all one location so pretty easy and budget came in at 15 million i, I don't even know if it made that back but that's not that expensive mm -hmm. in comparison to some of the other films that i've talked about on this show that are up around 100 mm -hmm. million yeah like heaven's gate i don't know if you ever saw that one no i don't, I don't that's not a comedy but um <laughs> Michael My, Michael Shimino, uh, that's kind of known as his like uh, Michael Shimino's weird because everyone knows him for the Deer Hunter, but everyone also knows him for that time where he was given a Blake check and the film bombed. Uh, Heaven's mm -hmm. Gate, that's the one. 
Yeah, when I did the last episode with uh, Scott, we were talking about how surprisingly expensive Meet Joe Black was and how poorly it did in comparison. But yeah, that movie cost $90 million. So this being $15 oh, wow. million, it's a comedy you're not really expecting to like rake in a ton of money anyway. And it almost made its money back, so it didn't do that bad. And it made you know, 30% of its money back in its opening weekend. So I think the power, like you said, of Pauly Shore being a draw still got it across that number in that first mm -hmm. week. But then once word of mouth got out, kind of maybe buried it and ended Pauly Shore's uh, trajectory as a box office draw. I can see a movie like this today being released by um, uh, Summit Entertainment or Revolution Studios. <laughs> I mean, I can see it. Yeah. Oddly enough, I think when I sat, the, when the movie first starts and I'm looking at what like the kind of subtext of the story is about climate change basically destroying the world. And so scientists are trying to reperfect the ecosystem within the biodome. I was like, wow, mm -hmm. this was actually 1996. And they're talking about like the global long term effects of climate change. And right. That's not really like the story, but the fact that it was there at all was pretty surprising. And it's not something that I really like peeped out when I was watching it as a younger person. So to see it now, I'm like, oh, wow, this is actually pretty prescient for its time. It, it doesn't it like ahead of its time. It doesn't spend time focusing on that at all. But to even like have that as the reason that this biodome exists was pretty impressive. Right. Yeah, like, um, yeah, you're, you're definitely right about that. And the thing I love about this movie when it first starts off, I love this. I'm, I'm, I'm mad that I can't find a song on any streaming services, but the song Think Again or mm -hmm. whatever the song is called that plays during the title credits, you know, like, uh, you know, you could think again. That's such a 90s punk song. I love it, man. And it fits the the, the title credits so well as you see in all the green, the green toy soldiers you know, the the weird looking uh, toys marching around like this is such a 90s movie and it's setting the tone so well at these. You got these two stoners, you know, who just, you know, they don't think <laughs> and the song's telling them to think again. So it it, 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 it it speaks to them so well. And, you know, believe it or not, there is kind of a theme here to this dumb movie. I mean, it is about saving the planet. You know, you got to think globally. Mm hmm. <laughs> and yeah and so like when you look at it like that it's not just not just about saving the planet but it's about getting certain types of people to care about saving the planet because yes these guys are like so dumb that the first time we meet them they're just like giving each other traumatic brain injury to see if they can get out of going to i don't even remember what the event was it was like a earth day thing or a save the whales right. yeah, valley or yeah. something and they're like all right we're gonna play rock paper scissor to see who has to get the concussion so that we can get out of going to this event with our girlfriends and then they just like stay home and that scene it's very early on but Polly's sitting on the couch biting his own toenails Oh, and, man. He, and he's got and he's got Steven biting the other toe. And I was like, oh, my God, what is happening right here? I was like, I must have blocked this out because this is <laughs> this is traumatic having to see this as an adult. Yeah. You know, as a kid, I was watching that and I was kind of like, again, I kind of blocked that out, too. I was like, this is a dumb scene. And the guy was like, get the one with the corn. 
Oh. And then he spits it out and he's like, he's like, good one. I was like, huh? I know. In watching that, I'm like, did he actually bite his toenail or did he have like something in his mouth already to like fake it when the scene happened? See? Because at this point, it's like he's got his toe like in his mouth. Like, I don't right. And the characters that they're playing, like, I wouldn't be surprised if he just went and did it for that particular I, scene in the movie. But my goodness, that was very upsetting to see as a grown I man. Think Paul, I think Paulie and Steven were so game that they, they probably did their own stunts in this movie. Like, I think they I think Steven really did swallow that key. Like, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't be surprised hopefully somebody on set was like no we don't want you to do this because then we're gonna have to take you to the hospital but he he looked like he wanted to swallow the key so hey i gotta give him credit for what it is because these are characters that like you really have to sell out and go 100 percent on and mm -hmm. like for paulie like this is not i would say that far removed from a lot of other characters that he's played. It's not too far down the line from the style of humor that he's done in other films. But I mean, for Steven, wasn't Usual Suspects like the year before this? And then he comes in and he does um, bio. Yeah, Usual Suspects in 95. And then he's doing a complete oh, yeah. 180. And he's going like complete stoner, dumbass, eating bugs that he smashes on himself, biting his friend's toenails taking shots to the skull in order to give himself a concussion to get out of obligations with their girlfriend. Like very, very hard turn. That's weird. Yeah. That's his like usual suspects is a great movie. Like, 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 and that's, that's a, that's a movie that's well revered too. And you go to this, I mean, I guess it shows he has range, but yeah. dang. Dang. Yeah. Son. It's a, yeah, it's a I, very hard one eighty. That's a very risky move as an actor because sometimes when you take those kind of risks, it helps you. Like, um, but you know, sometimes when you take those risks, it could. You think this movie destroyed his career? I mean, maybe because there are those kind of movies mm. where if you take that movie that doesn't do well and that is like really poorly received, you just have a hard time like getting that good job again. And that's why I was so curious, like with usual suspects coming a year before and him having like a really strong 1995 in general where i mean he did under the hula moon he did uh dead weekend oh uh, it was a tv movie uh it was in okay. the TV series legend uh he did fall time had usual suspects so he had like a great 1995 and it's not like that all stopped in 96 because he was still obviously riding the wave of success um right but then the next like movie that I can remember beyond Biodome is Half Baked, and then I gotta scroll for a while before I see something that Half Baked I... with Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Okay, that was kind. That's a cult hit. Yeah, for sure. But like then I'm like looking for just like something else within the next ten years, and I'm like, uh, I, I don't see um, anything that I would recognize by title, really. I don't know about you, but sometimes I do wish the Baldwin's were like the uh, the Scars guards or the yeah. Gleasons, where, where they're all successful. You know, I don't like seeing Alec get all the shine. You know, I, I want to see Daniel and Steven in some things. Yeah, I think the last thing I saw Daniel in, he was, it was uh, what, Vampires? James Carpenter's Vampires? Which one, which one was in The Sopranos? And they played uh, in the bad movie that was in The Sopranos. Uh, that sounds like Daniel to me. Yeah, it was probably Daniel. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I don't know for sure, but if I had to guess, I would say it's Daniel because it's like it seems like he took some of those kind of uh, smaller roles while like Alec was the big fish, Stephen mm-hmm. kind of like on the in between, and then where's Billy? There's so many of them that like you know they're yeah, like Billy. We, we can only give one of you guys a career. You can't all have careers. Yeah, and that's horrible. I don't like seeing that. You know, um, but uh, yeah, I, the Wayans brothers—they're all successful. You know, you got Sean, Marlon, Keenan, Damon. Like, yeah, but uh, yeah. yeah, I hear what you're saying. Uh, but yeah, you know, it this this is strange. It's strange that he took this movie right after Usual Suspects, but in the end you got something valuable and that's cult status you, you can no one can take that away yeah that's very true i mean on paper i'm sure he read the character and he came in he he you know auditioned for the role i assume and mm-hmm. he obviously has a lot of fun in this movie mm-hmm. and you know as a performer you have to probably follow the roles that are going to be the stuff that like gets you out of bed in the morning so yeah. if this is the kind of role where he was like, look, I get to have fun with this. I get to hang out with Polly. We're just going to like go crazy and it doesn't really matter. Like it's the kind of creative freedom you want as a performer to really just go for broke. You're not having a director that's like, hey, no, we can't have you be like that stupid or we can't have you make like this particular decision. So to see him with like, you know, white dreadlocks and all the weird shit that happens in this movie, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad that he took it because at least for me selfishly, like it, it's always stuck in my mind as like one of these performances that just like has to be seen to be believed. And Dude, I forgot he had the dreadlocks. That's the, <laughs> see, that's the thing. I, I know these characters so well that him having dreadlocks and, and Paulie Shore not being in his usual weasel type look with his wild hairstyle as the weasel. It's just normal to me when I watch him. I say, oh, that's Bud and Doyle. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, that's crazy. He did have dreadlocks in this movie. Yeah, he was like they're like baby dreads. Like he was getting them ready. Right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> and strangely enough, looking at like the the movies that we've done across this show so far, I think Biodome is the worst scored of all of them by mm. a significant margin, at least on Metacritic. Because it's IMDb scores four and a half. I mean, okay, that's bad. That's in the realm of some other movies I've done. But it's Metascore yeah, is a yeah. one out of a hundred. Wow. It's like staggeringly low. And I think on Rotten Tomatoes, I, I had it up before I went on vacation, but then I shut my computer down. But I think on Rotten Tomatoes, the score was a 4%. Mm. Which I can yeah, see that, though. Yeah, 100%. But I can't think of a movie that I've seen uh scored anywhere where it's lower than that i'm sure they exist but in general i don't see anything in single digits very often see i don't think it deserves the four though because i feel like this film has a lot of redeeming qualities even for the harshest critic well one of one of the like one of the harsh critics i'm not gonna say harshest because they're harshest and they're just not giving no grace but i feel like and, and, and we'll touch on it but you know, William Atherton, who, who I, he plays Faulkner, right? Yes. I mean, he just plays the straight man so brilliantly, like in the first two thirds of this movie. Like he, a guy that's just trying to keep it together. And he, <laughs> I'll get into this. He's really the hero of the story. Like Bud and Doyle are the <laughs> villains. They definitely are. 
Buddy Doyle are the villains. This man wants to save the world. And he literally goes, he has such a great dynamic character change by losing his mind towards the end. <laughs> that is, it's, I, I think it's a stroke of genius due to his performance and, and even to the script. Like, you know, like, like when you got the right actors in the type of roles in a dumb movie, it elevates it. It, it really does elevate it. But what I was going to say was just, just his character change alone throughout the course of the movie and his acting, I would figure it'd be above a four. But I, I guess. I see it, though. I'm not surprised. Yeah, I'm not that surprised either. But I just when I went to the Rotten Tomatoes page, it it's gives me the oh, you might also like these movies that have similar terrible scores. And the two lowest ones are the next Karate Kid with Hillary Swank, which is a seven percent. And mm. Miss, Mr. Nanny with I think it's Hulk Hogan, <laughs> which is a six percent. So <laughs> that so sounds this, like a four. Yeah. So this movie is below Mr. Nanny. On the overall Rotten Tomatoes score, so you better go to bed, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like watching Mr. Nanny, but there was a movie I came across. It was called Santa with Muscles, which was like Hulk Hogan is, I think he's like a supplement salesman or something, and he hits his head <laughs> and has amnesia, and he wakes up thinking that he's Santa Claus. So this is a movie yeah. that when this upcoming Christmas rolls around, that one's going in first because I've got to see. That's a dollar store bin movie. If I ever heard of one, man. Mm -hmm. That's a movie that they sell at 7-Eleven. Right. (laughs) Listen, there's some good movies I've seen at the at the dollar at the dollar store in in the bins, but there's one that deserves to be there. It's a movie (laughs) called Santa with Muscles, man. That deserves to be there. Absolutely. I mean, they could remake it now, put the rock in that. And I mean, at least he's like a better comedic actor. He could maybe pull it off, but yeah, I've they already kind of did that. Uh, the, the, they already kind of did that with the Two Fairy. Yeah, but that's what the two, but that's about the Two Fairy. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a little earlier in his career too, before he really like broke into like superstardom. Hmm. But yeah, enough of the Rock. I want to talk about William yeah, Atherton yeah, yeah. for a minute because I think he really like makes this movie because the yes. the other scientists that you surround these two characters with are. Uh. They don't like Bud and Doyle, but they're more sympathetic towards them. They're like, hey, they're stuck in here with us. We have to find a way to coexist. And this guy immediately is like, I hate you guys. But he's like, here, let me give you the tour. And then they're like, they're messing around the entire time. And he doesn't really like turn on them completely until they've established that they're not going to participate at all. I got to stop you here because I feel like in the beginning, they're against them. The other scientists, though, is it, switched because he's trying to make the best of the situation. I think Faulkner, you know, he realized these guys are here and he's talking to my man. I don't know. I don't know the actor that played him, but the older man that Bud and Doyle would talk to across the mirror. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, William Leakey. William Leakey. That's so the character. He's talking- it's played by Henry Gibson. Okay, so he's talking to Henry Gibson's character, and, he, and Henry Gibson was like, "Get them out of there." He's like, "I can't. The doors are locked for a whole year." Um, and, and by the way, let's just, dude, you knew there was a door out there in the uh, in the desert. You could have this movie could have been ended. You knew there was a door out there, and it still had the key in it. Like, really, you could have saved yourself losing your mind by just saying, "Hey, fellas, how about you take a walk through the desert?" Hey, there's a door out there with a key in it. Just, just, just go, go out. Just leave. 
I'll tell them you guys just uh, crawl through the vents or something. Like, anyway, we're not going to go there right now. But anyway, um, you know, Henry Gibson is like, uh, you know, two dummies from Tucson, can't tell. And then Faulkner actually tries to say, you know what, we're stuck with him. Let's just make the most out of this. And he and I like how he says to them, like, he says, so what do you guys want to do? And then, uh, you know, Paulie says something dumb. I want to come back as a leopard. You know? <laughs> and, and, and he says, well, you know, I can give you a, stri- a springboard to that future. Like Faulkner actually tries to help the situation. He, he goes, look, we're, we're stuck with these morons. Maybe I can make a success story out of them. Maybe we can make them, you know, invest in the environment and help us out, which happens, but at the cost of his own demise. <laughs> so, you know, the other scientists don't want to work with them. They, they feel like they're idiots, which they are. But I like how the move, as the movie goes on, they become more sympathetic if Faulkner just has had enough. Yeah, you're right. He does take the time at the very beginning uh, of his introduction to them. He gives them the tour. He shows them like the whole ecosystem. He wants to work with them because he doesn't have a choice. And it's it's a lot of the other crew that's resistant. Like Romulus isn't big on it uh at the oh, beginning Romulus. yeah uh <laughs> olivia she's not she's not really big on it and then you have kylie minoge who up until watching the movie this time i didn't realize it was the same kylie minoge and Teresa hill is the other female scientist that you know they they mess around with in ways that probably are not appropriate in 2023 i don't know if you could put that on camera as they climb into bed with them while they're sleeping and yeah, start I, I, uh, canoodling a lot of things from the 90s that today wouldn't be acceptable or whatever. A lot of things. <laughs> this was tame. But uh, no, I get what Very you're much. saying. Yeah, it would, right. Um, but uh, dude, I didn't even know Kylie Minogue was a singer. I, I just, I, I looked her up one day and I was like, hey, that singer, she looks like a, a character from a movie I like. I was like, wait a minute, that girl was in Biodome. Oh, she's a famous singer? Like, I didn't even know that. Yeah, super famous for a long time. And it's like, I always knew the name from her music career. And I just never pieced it together that this was the same person. Like, I I never would have thought that she would be in this movie. And then I'm watching the credits. I'm like, okay. I'm like, wait a second. Did I read that right? I was like, maybe it's pronounced differently. And so I look it up. Sure, shit. It's her. So credit to credit to her because she gets to have fun in this movie, too. Right, and there's a lot of great people in here that does cameos. Did you know Patty Hearst was in this movie? Uh, she's Doyle's mom, but I don't. Yeah. When do we ever see her? Is she at the end when they get out of the dome finally? So she shows up then, but then she had they have that flashback right where she she shows him how to uh, catch his breath in the water, like very good, bud, or or very good, uh, Doyle. Now let's try for three minutes, and she ducks his head <laughs> again. I think that's her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that'll probably lead to some of that brain damage these poor guys have uh and uh taylor negron also who plays like the creepy uh unemployed boyfriend of was it bud's mom oh man oh no it was yeah, Bud's yeah. girlfriend's no. mom right yeah he was the perfect creep dog like so the good. way he played that role yeah he was like he's like uh uh it hurts how much you want me like you know and then she goes like if can you tell your boyfriend that if he's not part of the solution he's part of the problem i hurt my leg rollerblading 
That's right. He couldn't go to work because he injured himself rollerblading. Right. I think there was and a scene we... too where she asked him about like if he was out of diapers or something, and he just like he basically says he's just like crapping on himself on the couch. And I was like, did I hear that right? I don't remember that scene. He probably did say that because he's such an outrageous character. But I like how when they get out of the end, he's forced to be working again. He's delivering them a pizza. And um, he makes a joke that goes straight over Bud and Doyle's heads, making fun of them. And they don't even catch on. They're just like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> you see the look on his face when he rolls his eyes like these <laughs> idiots don't even know when they're being insulted. <laughs> like, I, I love his character, man. Yeah, ignorance is bliss. And I mean, that's something I think that carries pretty good through line for the whole film is that these guys in their stupidity have managed to tap into like a certain enjoyment in life that none of the other characters seem to be able to harness. Like they all have like bigger visions, professionalism, they're working towards something, but in all of that, like nobody seems to really be having any fun. And Mm -hmm. That's it's the biggest disconnect between the group of characters that are in the film, but it also helps the other characters that are trapped in the dome with them start to come around to their side a little bit is that, yes, these guys are morons, but they want to have fun and they want us to have fun, too. And so eventually it begins to wear them down piece by piece. Yeah, I um yeah, yeah, and it forces them to get real too. And um can can I make a note? Um uh, I, I, I know I know there's a mantra that, you know, um your woman, your girlfriend or your your wife or whoever you're with is your better half. And we see that in this film, but the girlfriends aren't that much smarter either. If I'm gonna be real. They're well, one, I, I don't think they're that smart because they're with these guys. But it's Fair the fact enough. that <laughs> Right. And it's the fact that, you know, they just it's like the whole kissing on the mirror thing. Like I, it's, it's a it's a sweet scene. But I was like, you know what? Maybe that's just love making them do that. But then they make some other decisions that make me side eye them. Like uh, like when they drive away it would, in the beginning, after they realized Bud and Doyle tried to make stuff up or tried to fake an injury not to go. And, and the one girl says, well, you know, Bud is getting better with his yoga. And there's something about a guy that knows how to lick his back. I was like, <laughs> I don't, I don't think these women are that far off from them. <laughs> like, like, if that's something. If that's the reason you're staying with this guy, you, you're not far off mentally from them. Yeah, it reminds me of the saying, "Water seeks its own level." So, right? <laughs> yeah, that's smarter, but mm-hmm. yeah, like yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's a scene where they're trying to like even nail nail it home a little bit further of like how dumb these guys are. And we see them, you know, what I can only imagine is, you know, back at Bud's place and they created a, a sheet fort, like they're five-year-olds. Oh, right, right. And they're yeah, in yeah, there yeah. hotboxing it with each other's farts as oh, Doyle <laughs> identifies each of Bud's farts based on what he ate at what time and i like as a kid of course like i'm like this is funny like and even now i'm in my late 30s but like i'm always gonna laugh at a fart joke because farts are funny but this is so like revolting that it's even like pushing the limits on like where you can take a fart joke because it's not a surprise 
It's not like, oh, the smell is offensive. It's like these two just enjoying farting in a confined space and you know. <laughs> identifying that fart down to the meal that uh, your buddy had had. There's a point where stupidity transcends itself to just straight up uh, secret genius. Yeah. Like, like, like the fact that you can <laughs> you can smell the fact that you're so close with this man, you can smell his farts and realize what he ate that morning. And he, when he tells you to go a little deeper, man, you know, keep, 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 keep smiling around. And you can literally tell him, okay, you had a grilled cheese earlier too. Like, like that's just, that, that's stupidity to the point where it just, it, it transcends itself into genius. <laughs> I just, I like, I didn't, remember it being that crude because they come they circle back to that like i think mm -hmm. it was after they get like i don't know if it was like they got banished from the rest of them or they were i think they were just like in their room in their hammocks and they were doing it again but i think it was in reverse i think it was bud smelling doyle's farts and, mm -hmm. and going through like the the different limited food options that they right. had uh, uh in the biodome right <laughs> right right um yeah 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 <laughs> that whole sequence is dumb too now i didn't quite get that so like why is there food why why was there junk food in there in the first place these people are focused on a balanced diet and everything what was i don't, I didn't get the point of that like why would that even be hidden i mean i guess like you want like some kind of reward system in place maybe if you're these people you're stuck in there for a year oh. You want to be able to be like, oh, okay, we're gonna like celebrate by having Cheetos or whatever. But instead, somehow you don't lock like the most important room when it comes to your food reserves, and you let the two morons get in, and right. you also like leave the nitrous oxide in there, and they're just getting high as hell and eating right. everything in sight. And that's finally like the tipping point that puts uh, Faulkner over the edge. Over the like, edge. Okay, like we cannot deal with these two on just a regular human level anymore because they're just they're too crazy for what we're trying to accomplish yeah yeah absolutely and um yeah i, I agree i i want to say um this film, <laughs> this film has some solid funny jokes that that go past dumb comedy like i like the scene where they're in the desert and they're freezing and you know no actually it's not even freezing it's, it's towards the uh the beginning and at some point, um, no, it's towards the daytime, I mean, and, and, and Doyo at some point says, um, they start confessing their sins to each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, and Doyo in the end is like, you remember the great house fire or such and such where the fire, where the house lit on fire? And then oh, with the hamster that, that got lit on fire. <laughs> right, right. And then, and then Paulie turns to him and says, you started that fire? Uh, no, but it'll be awesome if I did. <laughs> I was like, that's funny. Like, that's sincerely funny. Yeah, it's like, because uh, they're, they're playing that scene like, oh, we're out here in the desert, like we're dying of starvation, we're right. thirsty, and we need to like get all these things off our chest. And this guy is so dumb that he's just reminiscing about a hamster that caught fire and like lit part of the city on fire. And he's just like, oh, you remember that? That was so cool. <laughs> Like right, right. there's there's levels to the way that the humor is structured, where I think mm -hmm. the va the vast majority of it is meant to sort of like beat you over the head with how dumb it is. But there's also like a lot of underlying humor there 
that right. that works pretty well, but it's like if you're if you don't slow down to see it, it's not going to work as well. And so maybe because this movie's PG-13, uh it's not a hard R-rated movie because they probably knew that some of Polly Shore's audience at the time was going to be kids, so they want kids to see it, but they also know that Polly's humor is fairly adult. So they have mm-hmm. to structure it in a way where it's like uh, kind of the way that good kids movies are written with like, hey, if you're an adult, you'll understand this joke. But if you're a kid, it's just you're going to go right past it and not even notice. Very similar right. here. And there's uh, there's a joke that they have like about Mothra, which uh, they kind of like re- they <laughs> pretend to be Mothra. like, this- <laughs> yeah, they pretend to be like the little like singing Mothra twins. And I was like, yeah, as a Godzilla fan, like I think that joke works pretty well. I mean, it's like an easy to make joke, but uh, the right. vast majority of their audience, I don't think necessarily knows about the twins that sing the Mothra song. You know, I did. I didn't know about it either. I just thought it was something funny from the movie. I I I never saw the old Godzilla movie, so. You telling me that makes me laugh even more because I thought they just made that up. Like, come back, my friend. <laughs> yeah, like in the original. Well, not the original Godzilla, but I think God, Godzilla vs. Mothra is maybe the first one. First appearance of oh, Mothra. Okay. And there's two little twins that are maybe like a foot and a half tall. And they're like the the spiritual representatives of Mothra. So me knowing that I'm like, oh, okay, like this is something that even when I was like super into Godzilla movies as a kid was not something that I picked up on until I just watched it recently. And I was like, oh, okay, now I get that joke. Now that I'm in my thirties and have enough context and history behind me to actually understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I um I wanted to say to you, you know, there's even plot, there's even plots that happen in the background that are funny. Like it's some stuff I didn't notice as a kid. Like when they're watching the news report, um, Bud and Doyle's girlfriends, and uh they said, uh, now we're gonna show the bullet, enter in back and to the left. Back and to the left. <laughs> <laughs> like and then like that's just a strange, disturbing news report. And then you got Rose McGowan's character. Um, who was Bud and Doyle's girlfriend's friend. And that one guy who's Bud and Doyle's friend that likes her, um, you know, she's dissing him or whatever. Like, I, I I guess that was a diss back then. One word, raid. I was like, <laughs> I didn't get that. I didn't get that insult. But um, but anyway, I guess she dissed him. And you, if, you, if you look and you notice um, about uh, when, when Bud and Doyle finally get, uh, get out of the biodome, you know, everyone kind of escapes from that bomb that Faulkner made. You see her and him outside, and she's pregnant. Like so, like, they got together and had a baby together. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't even notice rem- that. I didn't even remember Rose McGowan was in this movie until right. watching it like last week. Mm-hmm. And she's one of like like you said. There's a lot of good cameos in this. Even Roger Clinton, Bill Clinton's brother, is in this movie as Professor Bloom. So. Yeah, there's, there's so many of those that it's just surprising. Uh, and like the Joey Warren Adams, who's Bud's girlfriend as well, like she had her right. heyday in that mid '90s era as well. Absolutely, yeah. She's she's always been known for the voice, her her raspy voice. I like to say she was a uh, Emma Stone before Emma Stone. Um, yeah, I can they, see they're that. both. A, yeah. yeah, she could. Hey, she they, she could play Emma Stone's mom in a movie, and that that'd be pretty full circle. But um, I wanted to say, um, 
Now, one cameo I've always remembered since the first time I saw it was a Tenacious D cameo. Um, I like Jack Black. I'm not much of a Tenacious D fan, but I like Jack Black. Um, but I like how they're singing the song. He says, you know, we just want to say some trees. We just want to say some freaking trees. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it, it was Jack Black putting his Jack Blackness on it before he became, you know, Jack Black. Very much so. I didn't even know that they were in it. Like, I'd seen this movie probably five six times over the course of my life before i watched it last week and as soon as i heard it in the background i'm like oh my god that's tenacious d and it's like they don't really like get too close they don't focus on jack black as a character very much they're just like they're two guys that are playing this song i don't even know if it's on earth day but they're it seems like they're at camp they're on campus at the college and it's just kind of happening in the background and they give it like a brief look and then they pull away from it so yeah very cool to like see tenacious d performing in that setting and it just kind of like lets you know that behind the scenes obviously all the connections through paulie and comedy store and all that stuff uh kind of paved the way for those guys to have that for maybe first opportunity i can't remember if tenacious d had done anything before this on camera um i i wouldn't know fair enough uh but it it was cool to see nonetheless because uh i think was it uh demolition man was 95 and jack black has a very very small cameo in that as well as like one of the underground Mm -hmm. henchmen where you just kind of see his face and i also think that like the year before maybe also 95 he was in Waterworld too i think as one of the the smokers yeah, so was, yeah, I, I do. I do know he had a role in Waterworld. So yeah, it was it was one of the like earliest instances of Jack Black starting to like get work and like make make his way uh, to becoming probably uh, more successful career wise than the vast majority of people in this film. Mm, yeah, I think one of my favorite parts of this story, though, is kind of their redemption with i mean i guess it's i don't know if it starts with romulus but one of the first things that they mess up on a large scale is the rebreeding of that very particular uh species of butterfly and right you know then they just it, it goes from like something small and innocuous like hey these are these two bugs mating and we we have to like kind of force it to happen for them to to procreate and you know repopulate and they mm-hmm. completely like destroy that butterfly enclosure and to see Romulus like so heartbroken and devastated by it. And I mean, he rightfully does not like them for a long right. period of time after that. So as the curve goes back the other direction and it's all kind of the falling action after the party where they've basically destroyed the biodome at that point by opening up the back door and having a kegger in there. One of the first signs that they've actually like done something positive was those butterflies mating again out in the wild. And it was very interesting seeing it now in 2023 and to see that the story is about these two kind of stoner guys that are idiots that get into a 
very exclusive, very, I guess, elite environmental program that they shouldn't be in. And then they naturally screw it up out of their own selfishness. And through, I, I don't even remember what it is exactly that like makes them want to fix it other than like their girlfriends are mad right because they had Mm -hmm. this big party and they showed this disrespect and so it's their girlfriends finally like putting their foot down and being like no you guys messed up and them wanting to kind of redeem themselves that their entire redemption curve is really them just cleaning up the mess that they made to begin with And if it's not for Faulkner, like becoming an extremist at the same time, then their curve as, I guess, I don't know, quote unquote heroes is really just like these two morons cleaned up a mess that they made and now they're celebrated as heroes. And I'm like, ooh, that's kind of a low bar right there. But I understand where it's coming from. So like you said about Faulkner, like his performance makes the entire story work because right. he starts as, you know, uh, kind of controlling, but, you know, well-intended good guy. He mm-hmm. offers them courtesy and tries to show them the ropes and get them to participate in a way that he believes is valuable. They finally like wear out their welcome with him and then he exiles them. So he goes like completely the opposite direction. He's like, no, I have zero patience for them anymore. I'm exiling them. And then when Bud and Doyle begin to work their way back from exile, he has gone completely rogue at that point. And he's living underground, building bombs because he's going to blow the whole thing up out of spite almost. Um, yeah, out of spite. And he, yeah, you know, literally uh, what he's going through uh, is really a mess. He really does lose his mind. He's like, you know what? I uh, I want to save the world. Now I feel like the only way to save the world is to become God and destroy my own creation. So that that's not a, that's that's not logical thinking. That's it's the not. thinking of a man that's lost <laughs> his mind. And I like how the, the film kind of does make that realistic. Like, you know, something ain't right with this guy where he's like, I'm going to destroy my own creation. Yeah, there's a lot of movies that focus on uh, isolation and what that does to your mind. Mm. And that's like kind of, that's not something that they really spend a ton of time with here because there are a lot of characters in a confined space and you're really only giving a significant amount of time to two of them. But the selection process that had to go into selecting the scientists that actually were going to be involved in this, they had to be mentally strong enough to deal with that isolation for a full year. And not everybody can do that. And so it's interesting that the guy who was basically in charge of the whole program or the top scientist in the program was the one who was least mentally stable when it came to dealing with actually being locked inside that dome, because it didn't necessarily have to be Bud or Doyle, but anything that went wrong in there seems like it could have been the tipping point for him to, you know, completely break bad and uh-huh. go that route that he went in the film. It just happened to be Bud and Doyle being the catalyst in that instance. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. And, you know, looking at this movie through uh, a lens from, what was it 27 years down the line? 
as dumb as it is, it doesn't ever really pretend to be smart. It's not trying to like convince the audience that this is this intellectual story about the value of getting ahead of the curve with climate change or any of that stuff. It's all there in subtext and like it's there if you want it. Like if you really want to pick up on that stuff, like the groundwork is there. But this is really just about these two dumb guys having fun in a situation that really doesn't seem fun for them. And uh-huh. it's got a very good soundtrack as well. So for a for a mid 90s movie that just wants to be colorful and fun, I think it nails that pretty damn well. Uh-huh. Yeah. I would say that too. It it is a pretty fun movie. Like, um, it it doesn't take itself too seriously. And I even love how you get to the classic ending where it set itself up for a sequel, right? That's what 90s films always did. Like, you know, like uh, man, I gotta I gotta take a whiz. And the girls, like I said, they're not too far from them mentally. Like they go, Yeah, mm-hmm. us too. <laughs> let's go to that, let's go to that uh that oil rig over there. It's like, yeah, let's do it. It's like, again, you know, commenting on how, you know, oil kind of pollutes the earth and stuff like, well, it kind of like, you know, earth pollution and stuff like that. So I like how it kept with that theme. But it's like, again, it's like, you know, you you didn't learn anything. (laughs) You're still making the same mistake. Absolutely. We go through the entire 90 minutes. You have the characters go through the entire like journey from being the idiots to the villains to then the hero redemption arc. And then as soon right. as they get out, it's like, oh yeah, but we're still morons and we're going to go <laughs> and do the exact same thing all over again. I don't Nothing know. It looks like yeah. It looks like they're driving up to like a nuclear power plant or something too. So I'm like, uh, this, this is right, that's what I was saying. Well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, was it, was it a power plant? I don't know. There was like big smokestacks where okay. like there's just black smoke pumping in the air could have been an oil refinery uh is there was just a sign that says like keep out trespassing uh right at the front there i don't remember exactly right, right. what it said but it's kind of crazy to think that they go through all that and they even bothered to write in the story that like these guys are going to go through this redemption arc and then be the the heroes in the end more or less and then just in the snap of a finger, it's like, that's all gone. They didn't learn anything and they're headed right back into disaster all over again. And that's kind of just like who these characters are. So I kind of actually like that they didn't learn their lesson, but that they were motivated by the shame that their girlfriends gave them for messing things Mm -hmm. up in the first place, because it seems to be their primary motivation throughout much of the film. Mm hmm. I want to ask yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, I totally. Uh, there is the scene at the end where Atherton's character uh, Faulkner, he's like he tricks them into placing the coconut bombs all over the place, right? They they don't right. ask any questions. They're just like, oh hey, let's just like throw these all over the place. Then they figure it out late in the game, and he's got the detonator. And there's a point where Polly and Atherton <laughs> are kind of wrestling for the detonator, and Stephen's like watching from a distance. And mm-hmm. he's like fighting the air, like like he's part of it. 
where the whole time you know, it's like your buddy's in a headlock over there. Like you guys could just gang up on him very easily and yeah. wrestle control of the remote away. But instead he decides to uh, like shot put uh, a rock that he finds on the ground. And <laughs> I was like, it just, it's such a, a perfect microcosm of like who and these think, guys are. Yeah. And I, and I think he was trying to like, try to try to like coach Polly. Like, 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 do the move, do the move. Like, I, I think that's what he was trying to do with all his, with all his, uh, his gestures. And then he threw the rock. Um, yeah, man, there's no logic with these guys. They, they, they're Bud and Doyle. Right? There's no logic with them. There's not. And one thing that we didn't really uh, touch on in kind of like the the story dynamic is uh, Henry Gibson's character, Leaky, the guy who I guess he owns the Biodome and it's the project that he's funding. <laughs> yeah, he's. He's the first one to recognize the value of Bud and Doyle as commodities to the uh, the media presentation of the project, because it seems like, yeah, it seems like here what what you really have is like climate change is a problem. These characters are working on a solution and nobody cares. And you get these two kind of dumbasses that sneak their way in there. And now all of a sudden, like the story that they're locked inside becomes compelling and the media is interested and people are showing up outside and like celebrating and cheering for them. And so he very quickly recognizes the value of having an everyday person that is now hands on in the situation. And I I would be really curious to talk to the writers about this because none of the writers from what I could tell, like went on to do all that much. Uh, It was Adam Leff, Mitchell Peck and Jason Blumenthal. I think for the vast majority of them, like they, they wrote the story here. And I think the, uh, I think it was Leff who wrote the screenplay, but Uh uh, I didn't see a ton of other stuff from them. So I'd be really curious to see if their intention was to make it this, kind of subversive message about the value of getting the layperson involved in an important public cause or if it was like hey these guys are just going to be morons and we need to have some substance that makes the connective tissue like get us from point a to point d at the end of the story Uh um See, I, here's the thing. So, so basically, are, are you asking like, what's the point of Henry Gibson's character, or like, what, what do you? No, I'm just I'm curious if the writers, like, when they sat down to actually come mm-hmm. up with the story, if the right. if the idea behind the story was really the whole time to try to reach uh, a young adolescent audience who would have been like me as a 13 year old who was right. un- unaware of climate change didn't care, wanted to have fun and listen to like crazy music and just like enjoy these guys being a moron was the goal really to get me to try to understand the value of working towards like a common goal as a, as the human species, or was it really to just like have fun with these two guys and then get some sort of story that worked to throw it all together? You know, I feel like, I feel like from, from a screenwriter perspective, I feel like, okay, we have this, this story about the two stoners, which, okay, that's good, but we need something going on in the background. So when they, when they, when they go with the idea of two stoners being thrown in a, um, in a science experiment, 
to uh, make the world a more habitable place. Then they go, when they do something like that, they go, okay, this actually could turn into something. Because when you throw two idiots uh, into NASA to, to fly out to space, when you put Pauly Shore in space to, uh, you know, try to uh, stop, I don't know, if you put Pauly Shore in Armageddon, you're going to, you're going to get some, uh, you're going to get some, uh, fireworks going. So I feel like the screenwriters were like, okay, we, we need a plot B that, that, that kind of like puts this above other stoner films. And I feel like it wasn't a bad swing for the fences to, in, to introduce climate change, especially so progressively back then, because it does make the film different. Like if this was about Bud and Doyle trying to get their girlfriends back and taking a stroll around LA I don't know if Biodome would still be as great as it, as it was. Yeah, I don't think so at all. I think it needs the context of it being trapped in this one spot and having it uh, revolve around Earth Day as well, which I think was, what, Saturday or Sunday? So oddly enough, we did the episode Friday. with... Uh, yeah, there you go. So we did the the episode on Meet Joe Black. Uh, we recorded that on Tax Day. And then, you know, if I were not out of town, we could have maybe even recorded this episode on Earth Day, which is a central focus of this film. So I think it's cosmically time for this Biodome episode to get out into the universe. And you had mentioned that they kind of set it up for a sequel, which never happened. But oddly enough, this year, the Mel Eslin film Biosphere is coming out. And that yeah. is uh, written by Mark Duplass and uh, Eslin, and it's starring Duplass and Sterling K. Brown. And I guess they're like the last two people on Earth, but they have to adapt and survive, and they're trapped in sort of inside some sort of similar environment. So, uh, yeah. of course, like this movie is going to be on my must watch list because it's going to be a spiritual successor to Biodome, whether or not it's related to Biodome in any way, <laughs> which if they want the movie to be successful, is probably in their best interest to avoid. But that one comes out in July of this year. So I'm excited for yeah. that one for sure. OK, I didn't I didn't hear about that one. Yeah, I stumbled across it on accident. I don't remember. I was looking for something for Sterling K. Brown, and I was like, oh, what is this he's working on? Oh, Duplass, too? Okay. And I guess it was completed last year, but it's coming out this year. And, you know, two guys in isolation inside a, you know, bubble at the end of the world. Like, it's not too far off from being a spiritual sequel. So I'm going to give it its credit, and I'm going to check it out in July for sure. Uh, but we've come to the time where we get to hear what the critics really thought about this movie because they did not have high opinions of Biodome whatsoever. Time for Critics Corner. Yeah, so let's see. It has a Metascore of one, as I said. Uh, and wow, that's a lot of zeros. So they've got, I think there's 10 reviews here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of them are zeros which would explain the cumulative score of one or the aggregate mm. score of one. So I guess we typically do five. So I'm going to jump around mm. and then we'll, we'll make sure that we get the two ones that actually have numbers attached to them. So that's entertainment weekly and TV guide. And we'll start from, we'll start from the bottom. And since I'm an Angelino, we'll go with John Anderson's review from the Los Angeles times. 
He says, Shore seems convinced that the antics of his retarded persona amount to some manner of postmodernist anti-comedy, and this makes the resultant boredom seem all the more pathetic. So this guy... He wasn't even no... He wasn't even a weasel. <laughs> he, like, went, he went right at him, didn't he? John Anderson right. of the L.A. Times. Was this was this written in the 90s would be my question. Uh, it doesn't even have a link to the article. Bummer. Um, but yeah, he, he does not hold back there. But to say that this movie's boring seems like you definitely are not of the right ilk to be a fan of Biodome. Because, I mean, you can criticize this movie for a lot of things, but yeah. it being boring, I don't think is one that is on the spectrum of fair criticism. I'd agree. I don't think it's a boring movie by any means. Um, I uh, It goes by very quick. The 90 minutes don't go by slow. Yeah, it's it's brisk. It's like, I guess if you're like super turned off by the style of humor that like these characters yeah. are, then you're just like, yeah, I have to turn myself off to it because I can't like get on board. And then you're like, oh, even at 90 minutes, this is too long because I can't tolerate it. Then I guess that makes sense. But yeah, I, of all the things that this movie could be criticized for, I don't think being boring is one of them. Uh, let's yeah. see. We've got we could go Variety, Washington Post. San Francisco Examiner. Ooh, Christian Science Monitor. We've got to go with this one. This is David Starrett <laughs> from the Christian Science Monitor. What does he have to say? He said, Polly Shore oh, wow. is less a comedian than a class clown, and his dim-winded mugging makes Jim Carrey's antics seem creative triumphs by comparison. Vapid, vulgar, and more to the point, not funny. I mean, I would, I would expect no less in a review from the Christian Science Monitor. But Jim Carrey, he is a he. He does have a creative triumph with his comedy. That dude was just stating the obvious. <laughs> of course, of course, Jim Carrey is funnier than Paulie. Like, I, I, okay, all right, exactly. I guess that so, was uh huh. That's yeah. why he gave it a zero because he's just like, I don't like Paulie Shore, and Jim Carrey is funnier. Thanks, bud. <laughs> I, I had I had to go with Christian Science Monitor though, because I'm surprised that they even had somebody from that publication watch this movie to begin with. That poor guy on his assignment was like, "Man, why did they make me go see Biodome?" All right, we've got. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, go for it. No, I imagine that there are critics out there that that be like, "Dude, why was I forced to watch this movie?" And it shows in their reviews like like yeah so th they say everything but yeah so my um my uh head editor sent me out to see this movie that i wasn't fond of so i'm just gonna give you a quick biased review on why i think it's stupid yeah because like if you go to a movie where you feel like you're being held hostage regardless mm. of how short it is or regardless of what the movie ends up being you're approaching it from a perspective of like, I don't want to be here, but I'm being forced to be here. So that's like, that's never a good place to go into watching a movie, even if it's a great movie, because like, you don't, how many people want to go do something against their will? Like, regardless of what that thing is, I would say a very, mm -hmm. very, very tiny percentage. Not me. If you're like, Hey, you have to go watch this movie be like, okay, well, I mean, at that point, at least I'm getting paid to write about movies. I'd be a I'd be a much nicer guy than 
this dude from a Christian Science Monitor. So that's that's two, right? So we've got New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Washington Post, and uh, Variety or The New Yorker. I'm going to let you pick your poison on those because they're all zeros. Um, I want to go with The New Yorker and see what they say. Yeah. All right. New Yorker. Uncredited. I don't see a name attached to this because... They don't got the stones for it, but it says the sheer <laughs> <laughs> the sheer ineptitude of the movie is supposed to be funny, but there's no lunacy behind it. Shore and his writers are like comedians on Prozac, smiling through the fart jokes without a hint of desperation. Well, what are they supposed to be desperate about? They're writing fart jokes. <laughs> right. Come on, exactly. New Come on, New Yorker. Of course the New Yorker is going to hone in on the fart jokes. There's no way they were going to let that review pass without having to take a dump on the fart jokes. Okay, so that leaves us with TV Guide magazine, which gave this movie a 20. All right, that's a big that's 20 points higher than the next closest review. So mm. <laughs> TV Guide magazine says it is a potentially amusing comic premise, dropping a pair of anarchic anarch kick stoners into the spaced out sanctimonious world of new age biodome enthusiast get submerged in a shower of witless gags and the feeble one joke persona of mtv celebrity Polly shore which oddly enough i completely forgot that like he was the host of like spring break for all those years wasn't any spring break on mtv yes 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 he was on there for a while from what, so that... I, from what I know of him yeah, so that's probably why like his 90s were really stacked in in terms of him being bankable because really the people that were watching Spring Break on MTV were people that were not at Spring Break on MTV, right? And so if you're a college age kid during Spring Break, you're on Spring Break. You're not at home watching Polly Shore celebrate and do all this like crazy stuff for mtv so it that's what makes me think that this movie was definitely geared towards like the adolescent uh demographic that kind of came at the era of mtv where like the reality tv started to get super popular because like me as a i think what 13 year old 12 year old when this movie came out like, yeah, I'm just discovering that like, oh, I have cable and like I'm 12. I'm not going anywhere on spring break. So, hey, let me look at. Oh, here's these guys on spring break. Oh, here's these guys like out on road trips. So it's like they're they're trying to capitalize on that demographic that is beginning to like fantasize about what they're going to be doing in their future when they get to college, you know, when they graduate uh -huh. and become adults. So that's what makes me think that I think Biodome as a rated R movie it's probably a significantly better movie in terms of like how it uses its comedy, the kind of jokes it can tell if it wants to, but because Polly Shore being Polly Shore and this movie needing to have a certain return on its investment, it has to fall down to a PG 13 to try to get it to the right audience. Right. And that takes us to entertainment weekly, which is the final review that we're going to look at and it gave it a 42 so pretty nice in comparison to <laughs> increase <laughs> yeah i mean it's a huge increase it's a uh, it's 22 points higher than the next highest one uh 
and it's one of only two reviews that don't have zeros attached. Also doesn't have a name attached to it either, but Entertainment Weekly said that even with the low expectations and reasonable, any reasonable viewer brings to a shore flick, this rates only stupid plus. Hey, gave it a plus. The bongs and pajamas set. I don't remember seeing a bong. Maybe they did make a bong out of like a coconut or something. The bongs and pajamas <laughs> set, though, should be riveted. Uh, so, yeah, he's like, if you're in your pajamas and using a bong, you should really enjoy this movie. But again, like this isn't marketed towards that audience. I don't think maybe like, you know, you get a little bit older and it's like if you're, you know, a stoner that's uh, college age, I guess sitting around and you want that because i think paulie Schrift probably in his what mid-20s when this is happening when he's making this movie so uh, this is the characters themselves are college age and i think they even say that they took some community college courses uh in the film but didn't finish and i think the girls are going their girlfriends are going to college in the movie as well so it's definitely that demographic that's part of the story but you know i don't know that it's necessarily marketed to that demographic but nonetheless that's that's the best review that they could get out of somebody that was willing to commit pen to paper on this film Mm -hmm. but 42 42's not as bad as some that i've seen uh but yeah the people that hated it definitely hated this movie uh and surprising to see that it has about a four and a half on imdb which you know not not too far off from what i would expect to be honest Uh there's a reason this show is called bad movies we love and i'm just looking at a point of comparison like encino man which i think i would say is a significantly better movie than this still only has a 5.8 so oh yeah so encino man definitely is better yeah, and I think most people, like, if looking back in the past, then would look upon Encino Man fondly. Son-in-law, also a 5.8, but then you've got In the Army Now, which, you know, of course I have a soft spot for because it's still Pauly Shore doing the same thing that I saw him do previously. Uh, mm-hmm. That's got a 4.9, and Jerry Duty's got a 4.2, so still pretty much all within the same realm of... uh overall quality supposedly but you know i don't think that this movie is nearly as bad as the critics who were probably forced to see this uh against their will as we've seen because if you're writing if you're writing for a pro publication in the 90s you're probably a college graduate you're probably in your 30s at that point so being forced to go see Biodome against your will is not going to be an enjoyable experience for the L.A. Times reviewer, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine that if you're being if you're if you're coming into work and you're like, uh, man, I can't wait to see uh, what, what was hot around this time. Uh, the Good Son with Macaulay Culkin <laughs> or you know what I'm saying like I can't wait to see Macaulay Culkin uh, show show some more range. They're like, hey, um, you actually got Biodome. <laughs> What's that? Okay, so Stephen Baldwin's in it. Okay, usual suspect. Um, and Paulie Shore. What? <laughs> <laughs> that, that that's probably hilarious. Yeah, I mean, it could have. You could have got like Escape from L.A. You could have got The Rock, The English Patient, uh, Broken Arrow, Twister. 
Like there was mm-hmm. good like mid '90s stuff, even daylight with the Sylvester Stallone where he's like breaking out of the tunnel that gets flooded. Like even that's a right. good entertaining thriller from that area. You could have gotten like that thing you do, Romeo and Juliet. There's a lot of movies you could have drawn the short straw on and been okay, but you know the mm. guys that got forced to watch Biodome against their will. That's a that's a sad crowd. But fortunately, I wasn't one of those people. I got to watch it at my discretion. And then I went back and watched it again and again and again. And it's significantly different than when I saw it as a kid and in my 20s. And I think the one thing that I see like in 2023 that would probably be the biggest criticism of this movie if it came out now would be be that it is so blatantly structured as an example of white privilege that these two guys who are just straight dumbasses come in, destroy a science experiment, and then they get to be the heroes because they just clean up a mess that they made. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's like the height of nineties right there. Uh, But still, like I still had a good time watching it. It's not a movie that I'm going to put on like, all the time but it's a movie that if i were to see it on i would probably just sit there and watch it every time Mm. yeah i definitely agree there's certain movies like that where it's not the one that i'm going to always pull the trigger on but if i come across it it's like i have to sit down and watch it there's no way i can get away from it once it starts it's just one of those movies, and I'm not, I'm in no way comparing these two movies together. But if I'm surfing in a, in a world where I still have cable, if I'm surfing and I see heat, I'm turning on heat. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, you have to. I mean, this movie definitely, I think, is powered by a certain level of nostalgia for me. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, like, I still like it for the reasons that I liked it when I was younger. I just, as an adult who hadn't seen it in 15 years, some of the things that I maybe didn't understand quite as well didn't land for me on the same level. But mm. I think I think when you're in the realm of enjoying guilty pleasures, right, you're probably always mm. going to come to a fork in the road where you can either turn left and say that this stuff that... I probably shouldn't be enjoying. I'm going to steer away from because I probably shouldn't be enjoying mm-hmm. this. Or you go right and you say, I probably shouldn't be, in, be enjoying this, but I am. So I'm going to keep enjoying it. And I want to keep going down that road because there's some really weird movies down that road. And I love you getting know, the chance to talk to people about those weird movies. A movie that if I watched today at my age, I probably wouldn't watch again. Because it's so brutal and so exploitative. But because I liked it as a teenager when I watched it, from time to time, I still watch it today, is um, Bully by Larry Clark. You ever saw that movie? Yeah. That's, that's a, a very, yeah, that's a very brutal. Actually, the brutality doesn't even come towards until the end. But that's a very, like, violent, over-the-top, explicit movie. Like, watching it today, I'd be like, I don't. I don't like this, but because I watched it as a teenager 
And I was like, dude, this film was like such a, it, it was such a, um, it was unflinching to me. That and his other film, Kids, those movies kind of have a bittersweet spot in my heart because I like the acting in those movies, but the yeah. movies are so like raw. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. Those particular types of films uh, were not super easy to pull off, especially during the 90s. But I mean, you get Bijou Phillips and Nick Stahl and Brad Renfro and Bully. And it's like you really have a class of young up and coming actors that aren't taking the conventional films that would fall into their lap. They're taking like... Like these are very, very adult movies. Like, despite it being called kids and despite bully being about like high school age, like these are super right. adult movies. And so I think that's really what makes those kinds of movies have uh redeeming qualities beyond the era which they were made, because like you're asking a lot of these really young actors, and for the most part, like they're yeah. really they're really delivering. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I love that movie is the reason I love um Michael Pitt's in it too. I like him as an actor, but who was the one that played the bully? It was Nick Stahl. That movie yeah. is the reason why I love Nick Stahl as an actor. I mean, he he was a bastard in that movie, and he sold it. Yeah, he was. I mean, like it was the kind of movie that was this two thousand one. So I was a junior somewhere around there. Yeah, junior in high school, and I remember seeing this and like even at seventeen, sixteen, I was like, whoa. I was like, this is intense. I was like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I should be watching this. Like, this seems like a movie that I would enjoy more like at this stage in my life than I did when I was 17. I think I saw it maybe one other time. And I think it was my mom, of course, probably was like, you should watch this movie. And I'm like, why? <laughs> oh, wow. Really? Yeah. yeah my mom, I, I, she showed me all kinds of stuff. I'm even uncomfortable at this age watching it, and I'm a grown-ass adult. I'm like, this movie makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I think it was probably uh, Brad Renfro because she was a big fan of his, and he had done... Mm. Uh, rest after, in peace. After Pupil. Yeah, rest in peace, Brad. After Pupil, which is great. Uh, Sleepers, yeah. The Cure, and The Client were like the ones that really like got me into that. And then so by the time uh, like Bully came around, he was maybe even in his like early 20s at that point. Uh, he wasn't mm-hmm. like a full on kid anymore, but his career trajectory like was really going in a very strong direction. And like to lose his talent really sucked. Yeah, unfortunately. It was because he because he he was on such a rise, um, and, and I don't want to go too much off topic. But as far as 90, 90s films goes, At Pupil is probably one of the most underrated Stephen King adaptations ever. Oh like, yeah. So some people don't even know that Stephen King wrote that story. He's like, dude, that's so crazy. Like about a kid trying to uh, terrorize this ex Nazi. But I'm like, dude, you know, it's based off a of Stephen King story. I'm like what? Like yeah. Yeah, it was like the perfect wheelhouse for something that my mom liked. It was like, oh, an up and coming young actor that she really liked and Stephen King. So she's like, watch this. And again, like at Pupil was what, 94, 94, 95, maybe? 98. Okay, so I was 14 when that Pupil came out. And she's like, here, watch this movie about uh, a kid who basically torments this old Nazi, but also in the process is like becoming a Nazi. I'm like, whoa, I'm like learning about Nazis in school. You sure you want me to watch this? (laughs) Mm -hmm. A little intense for a 14 year old, but hey, it stuck with me. I have the DVD still on my shelf. Yeah, for sure. 
we've come to we'll get back on track we came to mm-hmm. the point in the show where i'm gonna i want to hear that movie that is the comp where if you've seen biodome and you liked it what's you no know, the movie that you would recommend based on that or if you haven't seen biodome what's a movie that is like in the neighborhood that would get somebody to make that leap to watch biodome you know i i thought long and hard about it and i was gonna say son-in-law but the thing that makes biodome biodome is is, is chemistry between the leads i mean Pauly shore I don't know if I say he has chemistry with Carla Gugino and son-in-law. She's great and he's great, but together they just don't make sense. Um, but I would say absolutely dirty work with Norm McDonald and uh, Artie yeah, Lane. That's a great one. That, that's the comp for me. Like I'm like, if you love these type of dumb comedies with great chemistry, dirty work directed by Bob Saget, co-written and starred by Norm McDonald, rest in peace, and Artie Lane. I mean, the chemistry between those two in that movie was just the chef's kiss. Yeah, I have not seen this one in a long time. It's got Chevy Chase in it, too. Don Rickles. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is a movie that... Chris Farley? Yeah. This is a movie that's yeah. got a 24 on Metacritic and a 6.4. So it falls well within the sphere of bad movies we love as well. So we may end up talking about Dirty Work at some point on this show but i want to give you the opportunity now to give me any closing thoughts anything that we didn't touch on for biodome that you want to get off your chest is there any proclamation anything you want to say to the people i'm gonna quest i'm gonna i'm gonna quote the film uh tenant uh directed by christopher nolan i went on the letterbox because i wanted to see what people were saying about this type of movie i was gonna give it five stars and i think with one of the reviews i (laughs) Listen, and with one of the reviews I read, yeah, one of the reviews I read that gave it five stars, um, I did end up doing it. They were like, listen, don't question it. Just just feel it. <laughs> yeah, they said, don't question it. Just feel it. Like, I, and that's just what I got to say with Biodome. Like, don't question it. Just, just put it on. You can even turn your brain off. And even, even if you leave it on, this, still, this is still a funny movie. Like, there, I, I've seen worse comedies than this, I, I assure you. Um, I def I definitely have, but you know it's movies like this that aren't even like um badly made. I don't think this is a badly made movie. It's just it's just it's just it's just bad just by design. It's just bad like naturally bad, but not naturally bad to the point where you don't laugh. So yeah, bad by design. I like that. We'll steal that yeah. for the future of this show. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, when when you're not guest starring on my podcast you've got your own show and i was listening absolutely to your snakes on a plane versus cocaine bear episode because Mm. i was like i need to hear black cinephile shit all over cocaine bear i need to hear it because i love snakes on a plane i also like cocaine bear but why don't you tell the people Mm. about your show what you're working on what's coming up so uh my show is a double feature versus and i uh, i run it with my co-host brad uh, he, he's my ride or die cinephile buddy. And, uh, we, we've known each other for a while since I was living and living in Michigan. So basically what we do is we take two films with a, a linking theme, a linking theme or a linking actor or all of the above. 
and uh, we pit them against each other. We we give a quick synopsis of both. We we uh, we give a discussion on both, and uh, we see which one wins out. You know, just the other just the other episode we had uh, Nicholas Cage and Renfield versus Nicholas Cage and Vampire's Kiss. Now, um, our general take was Vampire Kiss has so many great scenes of Nicholas Cage being over the top, but as an entire movie, we're like, what, what is this shit? Like, like, <laughs> like, like, he's on ten. The movie isn't. Like, like the movie, the movie is somewhere else in in the negatives. Um, but you know, and we talked, <laughs> and we talked about a film like Renfield, where you know he's we're, just like we're seeing the Brandon. Uh, the Brent, the Brent Assange, the Brandon Fraser Assange, or whatever they call it, we're seeing the Cage Assange, um, and we're seeing Cage, you know, get a, a role like that. That's on his same level of like, you know, being over the top and self aware, and how it fits so well in Renfield. But basically, that's 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 the show. And um, you know, Snakes on a Plane versus Cocaine Bear. My main thing, just to touch on that, is like, listen, Snakes on a Plane. I knew what I was getting. Like snakes on a like snakes Literally, on a plane. you're getting snakes that are on a plane, it, right? Plus, and, plus and, Sam Jackson, right? Plus Samuel Jackson. So you know you're gonna have some great humor. You're gonna have some solid uh, uh, horror gore because it's, it's directed by David R. Ellis, who is known for Final Destination. Rest in peace. You know, um, so you know what you're getting there with Cocaine Bear. I know Elizabeth Banks is a good director, so I'm like, okay. And I know Elizabeth Banks has a connection to comedy, so. When I'm, when I'm watching a movie where the horror elements fix, fits, the gore fits, but the comedy doesn't match the horror or it's not as good as the horror, that's why I'm kind of like, this, this film could have been a Snakes on a Plane. It could have been a classic. But in my mind, I'm like, I, I don't see it, Chief. Hey, fair enough to yeah. each their own. But since you brought up Nick Cage, obviously I'm a gigantic Nick Cage fan. And right. uh, when I started my vacation one of the things that i brought was uh the kindle version of the book where cage which hmm. nick nicks from the film club put me on to and it is a novel who the writer says he wrote the book while he was drunk and <laughs> so the story is a guy gets bitten by who he thinks is nicholas cage and he turns into nicholas cage and is basically a bunch of werewolves that instead of turning into wolves they turn into Nicolas Cage and so I'm about halfway through that right now and it's exactly as crazy uh and entertaining as you would think uh and so it's clearly done from a place of love it's an idea I would love mm -hmm. to see a movie made out of I doubt Cage would ever you know sign on for that but I'm curious since since you brought it up uh what did you think of Renfield Oh, I, I, I liked it. I, I thought it was very well done. Um, I, I felt like uh, Nicholas Holt was right there with Cage and they both kept the humors. They both kept the laughs going um, very over the top gore wise. But that's kind of the film's point. Like you, the, you, you literally can't take the gore in that film seriously. It's very violent, but it's cartoonishly violent, like to the point where you laugh when someone's arms get ripped off. It, it's literally yeah. funny. You know, like, I, I like that movie. I, I like Renfield. Um, but I wanted to say, I think Cage would do that. Listen, Cage he, looks at acting as a job. He would do that. He would. Well, I, I hope somebody writes a screenplay for it because it's written in a voice that is very cinematic, I would say. Like, as you're reading it, you can tell that it's designed to, like, give you a very visual presentation of it. And, like, it's so crazy. You could do it really with 
Nick Cage and a bunch of nobody actors. And then when I got, I think I got to like 33% done in the book and I was like, all right, let me take a break and see what the, the airplane has to offer in terms of entertainment. And it was uh, the old way, which is the Nick Cage Western. So I was like, all right, oh, let, yeah. me, let me double dip this Nick Cage right here. And <laughs> I, I eventually finished it. The old way is actually pretty good. It's not like a top tier Western premiere or anything, but the dynamic, it, it's an interesting dynamic that takes place between Nick Cage's character and uh, his daughter in the story mm -hmm. and like just how that unfolds. I, I'll leave it at that. It's it's a okay. it's a character driven Western, like just between the two of them, basically. And oh. it touches on some things that a lot of other Westerns don't, but also has a lot of like traditional uh, Western story tent poles, you know? Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, yeah, I, I, I might I might give it a try. But I want to let you know that um, with Nick Cage, you know, I, I'm just so proud of him. Like, I'm proud that he's getting this just due. Like, you know, you would hear all the jokes like, man, that guy's in so many shitty movies because he yep. has tax problems. Yep. But he still gives it his all. Like, and that's why when, yeah, and that's why when a film like Pig comes around, I was like, this is what he needs. This is a great moving, quirky picture. Not not even quirky. It's This is a great moving, weird movie. And, and it's a great performance by Nicolas Cage. Probably one of his best. And... When you when you heard all the acclaim from that, and then massive weight, uh, 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 the unbearable weight of massive talent came out, I said, "It's we here now, Cage is back. We here now." Yeah, it took like twenty years because his nineties were great, and then like the two thousands right. to twenty twenty were a little rough. Uh, but I've always stood by the idea that even though he's made bad movies, he's never the reason that they're bad, and he's always the Absolutely reason not. that they're watchable and so i stuck by him like through all of that and he still had like national treasure in there and source of sorcerer's apprentice and he snuck some like decent stuff in there but a lot of it was taking Matchstick projects Man. yeah matchstick men was in there as well but he ended up having to take a lot of projects that were uh like he's the only star in them and he's you know making uh like prisoners of the ghostland which is interesting and weird or he's making primal or he's making yeah, uh pay the ghost or all these weirds all these weird movies that he's like the only name that's attached to them so i'm i'm happy to see him having uh the public support and the love that he deserves you know i i would never uh rewatch the wicker man if it wasn't for him <laughs> i like we had to rewatch that for an episode and i was like dog i'm telling you this right now if this didn't have nick cage this wouldn't even be on my watch list to watch again. Right. But he sells the movie. Uh, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with you, but yeah, double feature versus um, you can find us on all podcasts where, uh, well, you can find us on Spotify, Apple. Um, I think we're on Google. I'm not sure. We might be on Google, but uh, we have a video channel on YouTube. I've been, I've been kind of trying to get back into video editing, but um, yeah, the next one we got, the next episode we got, uh, is uh, we're comparing two uh, anime films that came out that uh, it depends on if you watch the order of them, how how the narrative changes. But it's uh, basically, it's like a multiverse anime romance uh, pairing of films. One is called To Me, The One that the one Who Loved You. And the other one is uh, To Every You I've Loved Before. So uh, that should be interesting. Cool, sounds good. Uh, I personally listen to your show on Spotify. So I know that 
for a fact that it is there. I think mm-hmm. uh, Ben listens to it on Pocket Cast, so we know that it's there as well. But yeah, for the mm-hmm. most part, it's everywhere. You guys did an end of 2022 review as well, right? Yeah. Best of 2022. Yeah, that was a fun one. Yeah. So yeah, you, you got a lot of bases covered. And, you know, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk about a movie that, you know, I think even if we ask everybody in the film club who likes Biodome, it may be just the two of us. So I think, <laughs> you know what, I, I think they're being shy. I think some people would raise their hand, like, listen, I, I sent you a DM. I didn't want to say it in front of everyone else, but I do love this movie. Like, I think they're being a little shy. We'll see. When I when I post it around, I put the episode up. We'll see who supports it and who doesn't. And then we'll really know for sure who we if we got some biodomers in the group or not. But yes, thank yeah. you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Um I'm gonna thank put the, I'm gonna put the links up for your shows and everything uh in the show notes. And it's the same for YouTube, so I don't get it wrong. If I look it up, it's just uh double feature verses. Yeah, so it's double feature versus with verses spelled out. Well, thank you. Thank you for everything, man. Uh, again, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me tonight and chiseling out a couple of hours to talk about Biodome and a whole lot more. Our love for Nick Cage, all of that. Appreciate, appreciate uh, thank it. you for, for, moving, for moving the schedule around, man. Like I said, I felt bad that I didn't meet up with you, but it's like, you know, real life kind of hit me and I was like, dude, I'm not going to have the kind of squirrely stuff energy I need for this. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't want to do Nick a disservice. So, uh, yeah. Well, I appreciate that, but everything worked out the way it was supposed to work out. I was, you know, sh- I was uh, short on the clock as I was traveling last week anyway. So I was like, well, if this doesn't happen, that just gives me time to like actually pack and make sure I have everything. So completely mm-hmm. fine uh and i think we ended up getting a great episode out of it anyway so it's all good so thanks man have a great night and uh you know i'll see you in the chat see you around but uh yeah enjoy yourself man have a good night i will see you adios and uh let me know when it's up cool all right man well go enjoy the rest of your evening uh i'm gonna go make some dinner over here and let this episode render before i rip the audio out of it absolutely hey man thanks for inviting me thank you so much man Alright, see you. Have a good night. Thanks once again to Black Cinephile for joining me and for being my Biodome buddy. You can catch his show, Double Feature Versus, wherever you get your podcasts, and now on YouTube as well. I'm going to put his stuff up in the show notes, and you can also find his writing at 8-Bit Waffles. And my sincerest thanks to all of you who took the time to listen to this episode. I know your time is valuable and you have a lot of options when it comes to your podcast. So if you spent that time with us, I really do appreciate it. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can reach me at nick at or you can reach out to me at Bad Movies We Love on Twitter for the time being. And that's Bad Movies We Love with a L-U-V. This show is an extension of thescheist.com and the podcast is recorded, edited, mixed, produced right here in the home studio by yours truly. So until next time, stay safe, be well, and have fun no matter how you get your movies.